the earliest historical record that we have of the night before Jesus died is from one of Paul's letters. He wrote to the church in Corinth in around 50 AD. This is what he said. It's printed there on your outline. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Paul had received and was passing on exactly what Matthew records for us in his gospel. In fact, the word the Apostle Paul used for betrayed, Matthew uses some 15 times in this account of Jesus' passion. It's variously translated as betrayed, delivered up, handed over. That's what our passage for today is all about. Jesus himself sets the agenda, the beginning of chapter 26. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And the question we're thinking about tonight is simply this, by whom? Who is ultimately responsible for betraying, delivering up, handing Jesus over to his death? I went through a bit of a phase in high school of watching Midsummer Murders with my parents. Cool time, teenage Pat. And the murder mystery is having a bit of a cultural comeback, isn't it? And there's always that scene where everyone is gathered together into the room and the detective lays out all of the evidence and the verdict is delivered. Well, that's what we're going to be doing today. Some good old detective work in the text. We're going to see who done it. As Matthew lays out his account, where does the evidence point? Jesus was handed over. Who handed Jesus over to die? Well, the first suspects are the religious leaders. They, of course, have been locked in conflict and confrontation with Jesus for most of Matthew's gospel. And now that conflict comes to a head. Chapter 26, verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. That secret scheming sets off the series of events that follows. And do you notice how the chief priests are involved just about in every scene along the way? They're the ones, of course, who pay Judas the 30 pieces of silver. They are the ones who send the party to arrest Jesus in the garden. They are the ones who whip up the crowd into a frenzy, convincing them to cry out that Jesus be crucified. And we're told explicitly at the beginning of chapter 27, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed, so they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. Jesus has challenged the leaders. He's challenged their authority. He's called them to repentance. He's exposed their lack of justice, mercy and faithfulness. He's pulled off the mask of their hypocrisy. Jesus is like the son of the vineyard owner who's come to make one final appeal to the leaders of the people that they would turn back to God. But instead of turning from their wickedness, the leaders dig in their heels they bind up Jesus and they lead him away to die. In verse 18 of chapter 27, we're told that Pilate realised it was out of self-interest that they handed Jesus over to die. 
out of a selfish desire to protect their own power and authority, the religious leaders plot and they scheme and they deliver Jesus over to his death. Who handed Jesus over? Well, the religious leaders. They've got blood on their hands. We mustn't stop there, though, because at times in Christian history, there has been a nasty strain of theology that kind of lays all of the blame at the feet of the Jews that they are solely responsible for the death of Jesus. But that's a plain distortion of the text. Matthew shows us very clearly that it's not only Jewish religious leaders, but also the Gentile political authorities who hand Jesus over to death. Because the chief priests, they hand Jesus over to Pilate, the Roman governor. And it's Pilate who has the power to put Jesus to death or to set him free. Pilate is even convinced that Jesus is innocent. He's not guilty. He's done nothing wrong. But faced with an uproarious and riotous crowd, Pilate gives in and sentences Jesus to die. We'll consider this passage on Good Friday, but listen from Matthew 27, verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate was just as much a slave to self-interest as the religious leaders. He sees in Jesus an innocent man but he also sees in Jesus a threat to his own peace and his own power. Jesus is a political nuisance, a problem that he can quickly make go away. Pilate simply lacks the courage to stand up to the mob and rule with justice and righteousness. And in a stunning display of political pragmatism, Pilate gives in to the crowd. And though he makes that great display of washing his hands and claiming his innocence, Matthew shows us that he is very much responsible for the handing over of Jesus. But again, we can't stop there. As we've seen over the last several weeks, we constantly have to fight the tendency, reading Matthew's Gospel, to see opposition to Jesus as just an out there kind of problem. It's easy to point to the obvious enemies who set themselves up in opposition to Jesus and for ourselves claim that we're just innocent bystanders or that actually we're on team Jesus. Me me and Jesus, we're okay together. But it's not only the foes of Jesus who hand him over, but also his friends. Most obvious, of course, is Judas. Matthew 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? That's our phrase. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. There it is again. The other gospel writers make it very clear that greed was a part of Judas' motive for handing Jesus over. I think an even more fundamental motive is just plain old unbelief. Judas had started following Jesus in the hope that he was the Messiah, the promised king of Israel. And he had joined Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, expecting Jesus to come into the city of God and be crowned in glory. But Jesus keeps talking about coming to Jerusalem to die. 
He's a Messiah with a death wish. And Judas can't see past the grave to the glory that will follow. He has no faith that the way of the cross is the way to the crown. So he abandons Jesus and he betrays him into the hands of those who will kill him. That Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss is a stark and haunting picture of the truth. From the outside, we see a respectable man, a fine Jewish pedigree, a friend of Jesus honouring his Lord. In fact, it's the very betrayal of God. And so just about every time Judas is mentioned from verse 15 onwards, he's referred to as the one who betrayed him or even just simply the betrayer. I mean, no one's calling their kid Judas anymore, are they? Judas and betrayal are synonyms, even for us. But again, we can't stop there because it's not like Judas stands alone as one bad apple in a bunch of otherwise faithful friends. Judas is the extreme example, yes, but he's an example of the mindset that all of the disciples share. That's a failure to grasp the way of the cross, a failure to believe in Jesus, the suffering Messiah. Now, you see this most clearly in the contrast between the disciples and that woman who anointed Jesus with the very expensive perfume. While the chief priests are plotting to kill Jesus, Jesus is dining with a leper called Simon. That in itself is a striking contrast, isn't it? And at the dinner, a woman anoints Jesus with oil. It's this extravagant act of devotion. And it's also an act of faith. Jesus says that she's preparing him for his burial. It seems like this woman is the only person who believes what Jesus has been saying over and over and over again, that he's come to Jerusalem to die. And all the disciples don't believe this. So think about the comparison between the woman and Judas. The woman values Jesus with expensive perfume fit for a king. Judas values Jesus at 30 pieces of silver. The Old Testament law says that's the price for a slave. And all the disciples think the same thing. It's not just Judas. They're all indignant. Couldn't we have invested that money in the ministry of Jesus? Couldn't we have taken it and given it to the poor? After all, Jesus had just told parables about investing for the sake of the kingdom, about caring for the poor as an expression of our love for him. I think if we were there, we would have shared the very same pragmatic, principled economic concerns that the disciples did. But the problem is not that the disciples loved the poor too much, it's that they valued Jesus too little. Like Judas, all the disciples downplay the worth of Jesus. Like Judas, they can't grasp how suffering can be a part of God's salvation plan. And so even when the mob shows up in the garden, they take up swords to fight them away. They just don't get it. And then think about the contrast between the woman and Peter. The woman expresses her devotion, her adoration for Jesus in just this open and unashamed way, doesn't she? She doesn't care what other people say about her. But Peter, for all of his bluster, he can't even look a little slave girl in the eye and say, yeah, I'm on Jesus' side. 
All the disciples' courage and conviction melts away as the heat rises. They are all scattered. They're embarrassed about this suffering Messiah. They're ashamed of this king who will die on a cross. Judas' betrayal, the disciples' indignation, Peter's denial, all the disciples scattering like sheep, that all reflects the same reality. The disciples are friends of little faith. And either by betraying Jesus or abandoning him in his time of greatest need, all the friends of Jesus hand him over. They deliver him up to his death. Now, the point of all this abandoning and blame-shifting between all of these different characters is terrible in its impact. Nobody can read the story of the cross without realising that all of us, whether elites or crowds or special interests or cowards or friends, all of us have handed Jesus over. Who handed over Jesus? We did. I did. You did. If this is the final scene in the murder mystery, all of humanity is gathered together into the room and exposed in Matthew's passion. This is the climax of the story of Jesus, the climax of all human history, and it's the story of humanity putting God on trial, of humanity rejecting God, of humanity putting God to death on a cross. And so Jesus dies for all of those times where he challenges our authority and we reject him out of self-interest. Jesus dies for all of those times where we lack the courage to do what is right. Jesus dies for all of the times when we value the things of this world more highly than we value him. Jesus dies for all of those times when we bluster and boast about our devotion but then deny Jesus when the heat is on. Jesus dies for all of the times that we get swept up with the crowds. We just go along with everyone else instead of following Jesus when the going gets tough. Jesus is delivered up because of our unbelief. He is handed over because of our sin. And yet we can't stop there, can we? So far, we've seen Jesus turn passive, the one who has spoken so much through Matthew's gospel, he now hardly says a word. He's silenced his accusers again and again, but now he himself is silent. And he appears to lose control as his enemies scheme against him and his friends scatter from him. But Matthew wants to make it very clear that's not the whole story. He wants to show us that this whole thing is unfolding according to a different script. What really determines the future are not those secret meetings in the places of power. It's the plots of God revealed in the scriptures. And Matthew shows us that the handing over of Jesus happens in the fulfillment of God's word, even down to the tiniest detail. And so the price paid for Jesus fulfills the words of the prophets, words spoken by Jeremiah and Zechariah. Even as Jesus is arrested, he says twice, this has to happen for the scriptures to be fulfilled. This must take place for the words of the prophets to be fulfilled. Did you notice how even the timing is in God's hands and not in the hands of any human being? 
Remember the leaders were scheming in verse 5. They said, not during the festival or there may be a riot among the people. And then what happens? It happens during the festival and there's a riot among the people. Who's in charge? They're not. God is. God wants everyone to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover festival. That he's the true Lamb of God who takes away all the sin of the world. That on the cross he turns away God's wrath so that God's judgment would pass over us. And all of this is seen no more clearly than in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus prays to his Father. In his humanity he is overwhelmed by sadness and sorrow about what's to come. And he asks, if possible, that the cup of God's judgment will be taken from him. And there we see that it's not the will of foe or friend, but the will of his Father in heaven that leads Jesus to the cross. And so in the words of Psalm 2, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs and he carries out his plan to install his son on the throne and to save the world. Or as Peter says to the crowds in the book of Acts, after Jesus has risen from the dead and finally he's filled with the courage of the Spirit, and he says, this man Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Brothers and sisters, we need not despair Because God's mercy outpaces our sin in the most stunning way. He even turns our rejection of him into the way of our salvation. One more time though, we can't stop there. Because if we only focus on the human players in this story, we could end up thinking that Jesus is a tragic victim of circumstance, that just human evil is too great for him to withstand. But that's not the case. It's possible, though, that we can only speak of the Father's will in such a way that we end up with a twisted picture of God. We might end up with some kind of harsh and vindictive Father who stands in contrast to the merciful and gracious Jesus. And sometimes you do hear Christians talk about the cross in that way. As if Jesus is a helpless victim who must pay the price that the Father demands. But we have to resist that separation of the Father and the Son. We must reject any idea that there's some shadowy side of God that is at odds with the character of Jesus. And so we must recognize a fifth and final and most glorious truth about the handover of Jesus. That's Jesus handing himself over for us. Before anyone else says or does anything, Jesus has set the agenda. As you know, he said in verse 2, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. In verse 18, he tells his disciples, my appointed time is near. This is all happening according to Jesus. And then at that Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus not only explains what is about to happen, he even tells them what it means. 
And so in verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, does that sound like the behaviour to you of someone being forced into something against their will? Or someone about to be blindsided by unfortunate circumstances outside of their control? Everything here is intentional. Jesus has planned this meal for his disciples, this meal that we still celebrate today, to make it clear that he is the true sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And he's not only looking forward to his death, is he? But beyond his death, he points his disciples to the coming of the kingdom that awaits on the other side of the cross. Jesus is anticipating his death, but also his resurrection. He's preparing his disciples not only for his handover, but for his victory. See, there are many tragic deaths in history as people die as the result of terrified friends or gleeful enemies. But dear friends, this is not one of them. This is Jesus handing himself over for us, for me, for you. This is Jesus giving up his own life for the very people who gave him over to his death. This is Jesus willingly taking upon himself all our sins so that we can be forgiven. Jesus may look passive as he gets traded from hand to hand. It appears as if Jesus is being handed over by everybody. But this is Jesus who says in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. We started tonight with the words of the Apostle Paul. He wrote, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, on the night he was handed over, who handed him over? We did which makes the end of that verse just so so much more stunning. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it saying, this is my body given for you. Praise God for the handover. Amen.